Uh, welcome to this month's or this week's edition of uh, Commercial Real Estate 101, where we talk about different commercial real estate topics. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to talk to someone who has a ton of experience uh, in commercial transactions from the legal side of things, Jamie Cox. Um, she's here to talk to us a little bit about uh, the legal side of commercial real estate. So thanks again for, for agreeing to come on. Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. Hi, everyone. Hey, awesome. Well, generally speaking, when we, when we have people on uh, the uh, the meetup, we, we like to learn a little bit more about them and, and essentially what got them into their career. So if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe some of the transactions you are focused on, or I guess the, the legal side of things that you're focused on. Sure. Um, so Jamie Cox, um, I'm a founding member of Vice Cox and Townsend, which is a boutique transactional firm here in Louisville. Um, we... Myself and two of my partners started out many years ago at a larger firm here in Louisville and about five and a half years ago decided to, to leave and do our own thing. And we now have um, 11 lawyers, again, all transaction em employment law, um, corporate, um, bankruptcy, no litigators um, other than the bankruptcy attorney who tinkers yeah, in, that, in that direction. But um, so, I think it's really helpful for us to to focus just on transactional work and and to be able to have great referral systems for litigators so that if it looks like it's heading in that direction, we can go ahead and refer somebody out. But our primary focus is just transactions, getting them closed, um, moving things along. Um, and I, I started in that area really uh, just like so many of us by, by happenstance. Um, I was actually a philosophy major um, in college and didn't went on to graduate school, wasn't interested in teaching. So then I was unemployable. Um, so banks hire everyone and one hired me and I ended up just completely by chance in their um, investment real estate division. And, you know, I, I, my dad, when I was in college, begged me to take business classes. And I was like, no way, you know, that's so boring. That's the worst. And, uh, and so I, you know, um, jumping on in this real estate investment group at the bank, I loved it. It was so interesting. And every deal was different and dynamic and the people that were involved and actually just, um, getting involved with titles and surveys and all that old stuff. It was just super interesting to me. So, and I was lucky enough, I don't know if there are any local people that are involved on this, um, that are participating, but um, the bank that I worked for at the time, um, their counsel uh, was um, David Beekler, who is just legendary and highly reputable and a character. And he made it so interesting just telling me, and here I was 25 years old or whatever, and um, he just made it seem really very interesting and dynamic. And so from there, I decided to go on to law school and um, and continued. You know, law school is very much about litigation. There's very little attention paid to contract work um, and certainly very little on property. But anyway, I, I kept my focus in commercial real estate and just have stuck with it all these years. So I still love it. That's like awesome. the people you deal with, yeah, I like the the subject matter. It's just it's interesting stuff. That's awesome. So in in the investment side of things at the bank, you were primarily focused on commercial real estate transactions, or was yep. it also you were? Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's similar to me in the sense that I, I used to be in, in software. Uh, I was a software consultant for a long time. And one of the things that attracted me about commercial real estate was the diversity of, of transactions. Uh, oh, yeah. So. I mean, there's if you can dream it up, we can document it. <laughs> Definitely, of course. So now that we kind of know a little bit about yourself, um, what exactly is the role of a commercial real estate attorney in a transaction? And, and again, it's it's very broad depending on what the client needs, but if you could kind of elaborate a little bit on, on that, that'd be great. Yeah. So typically when a, when, by the time a transaction gets to me, brokers or, or even just principals of the seller and the buyer have gotten together and decided what the economic terms are, you know, just basic purchase price, identifying the land, maybe timing for closing, that sort of thing. Or if there are any special considerations, they may have ironed those out. But typically by the time I get it, those sorts of things have already been nailed down. So I might get involved at the letter of intent phase or term sheet. I like it when I am, because then if there's anything that needs to be addressed that hasn't been addressed up front, that maybe one of the one or the other of the parties might find objectionable, we can drop that into the letter of intent and get it out of the way before we get deeply into a purchase contract. So letter of intent phase, I like to be involved with that if I can, but brokers can do that just fine. Um, and then moving on to purchase contracts. So that's typically where I become deeply involved. So whether we are, whether I'm representing the buyer or the seller, whether I'm using a contract I've used before or I'm reviewing the other party's contract or you know, maybe somebody took something off the shelf or once in a blue moon, I will even get you know, just sort of a form fill in the blank contract, which I don't prefer for many reasons. But um, so, so that's where I get involved to assist with drafting and negotiating all the other terms that go into the transaction because there are lots other than just purchase price and, and timing. Um, so you want to build in due diligence and, you know, any kind of contingencies, all that stuff. So because that's, that's where I am all the time, I'm thinking about those things in a way that a buyer and a seller won't always be thinking about them. So once the purchase contract is signed, we move into the due diligence phase. If I'm representing the buyer, I'm keeping track of those deadlines to get due diligence done, making sure I'm kind of writing herd on getting title commitments, surveys, environmental, you know, you got to know your client. A lot of clients aren't interested in that, don't want to spend the money on that, um, or maybe they have some things that are being passed on from the seller, but just making sure that either they understand the risk if they want to waive those things, or if not, then, then they're obtaining that, going through that, helping them through that due diligence again within the timelines so that if you've got a, a deposit, it doesn't go hard before you're ready for that. And on the seller side, same thing, keeping track of buyer's due diligence so that you know when you need to respond to things like objections to title. You know, Typically, you'll have a, a window within which you can respond and say, no, I'm not going to fix that, or yes, I am. And you want to be able to do that. Otherwise, you waive your rights, typically. So just staying on top of all that and then sort of quarterbacking things until you get to closing. And if your seller's counsel, then typically you're preparing the closing documents, unless you're buyer's counsel and title agent, um, which we typically wear both of those hats. Um, in Kentucky, you can do that. Not in every state though. 
Um, then you're also preparing the closing documents, setting up wires, acting as escrow agent, all of that to get it smoothly to closing. Um, and so everything in between there is what I do for buyer and seller in a typical transaction. Yeah, and, and again, that's obviously high level. There, there's an array of different things that can occur during a transaction, which obviously may necessitate certain actions from you guys, uh, which is also something to consider is if you're looking in that direction, but awesome. So let's say that you're in a transaction and you're running title and all of a sudden there's a cloud that, that comes up about the cloud on title. How exactly do you, do you go about resolving it or how does that, how does that work essentially? In, in yeah. Well, so um, if we're buyer's counsel and we get the title commitment, we get copies of all the exceptions and we notice that there's something, there's a defect that's not a defect like um, say there's a restriction that we don't like. That is simply a matter of negotiating with the seller to figure out if they can get a release of that restriction or if we can somehow live with it or get a waiver or something like that. The bigger, more problematic issues come up with say boundary line disputes or parties in the chain of title that didn't have the all of the consents that they needed. Most recently, uh, I think the biggest title issue that I've encountered, I mean, there's always title issues, let me first say that. There's almost always some issue that needs to be addressed, even if it's nothing more than getting a mortgage payoff. That's still something that needs to be addressed prior to closing, it needs to be raised. However, there are sometimes things back in the chain of title that have to be addressed that are historic. And those are much more of a challenge. We had an issue with a previous transfer. So in the chain of title where um, the property was owned by an individual, he was married at the time and he did not have his wife sign the deed. So in Kentucky, we have dower and curtsy rights. So the spouse, even if a person owns the property as an individual, um, without the spouse being on the deed, when they transfer that right, that spouse has to sign off transferring their interest as well. So a lot of folks object to that. They don't like it. They don't want to have to have their spouse sign off, but they have to. This person did not. And it was not the transaction we were working on. It was the previous transaction. So when we discovered this, we actually, they had since divorced. So we had to track down the prior seller track down his ex-wife and then explain it to her, explain that, you know, she wasn't going to get any money for quick claiming her interest in this property that had, you know, that she thought that she had gotten rid of years ago. Um, but luckily for us, that was, um, she was flexible and cooperative and, you know, we were able to get it done. Many times that's not a reality. And so in those cases, you want to rely on your title insurance company. So if your title insurance company, say if the issue in title was several transactions back, in some circumstances, your title company is willing to insure over that. So you as a buyer, your deed, there is still that cloud on title, but you have insurance over it. So in those cases, you have to talk to the title underwriter, the insurance underwriter, figure out what they need to get comfortable with that. And, um, and and just try to insure over it. Yeah, and that, that's just so that if they decide to come after you at some point legally for any reason, they at least have, you have insurance in place to be able that's to account exactly. for that. Yep, exactly right. That's awesome, yeah. And I'll, I will say that, especially when there's multiple 
owners involved in a transaction can get quite dicey. I know Paul had a transaction one time with the tick that had like 30 different owners involved. And it's just like, yeah. you have to yeah, get you don't, you don't see many of those anymore. I mean, they, no. they were kind of the fad a decade or so ago, but they were very problematic. So yeah, yeah. So it's just one of those things where it's, it can get very, very dicey, especially if there's a lot of different people that are involved in the, in the ownership of that property. So that's awesome. All right. So as far as, and this is something more so on the, the investment property side, uh, this is something we're actually working on right now with an investment property, but uh, estoppel certificates, can you explain a little bit about what they are? Are you involved with actually drafting those certificates? And then how does that work? Yes. So they are very important um, and they are um, just what they sound like. An estoppel certificate is intended to stop the person who signs it from making a claim later that's inconsistent with what they certified at that time. So, so if you are a proposed purchaser of say a shopping center, so you're going into this relying on the fact that you're gonna have all this revenue from all these leases to all these retail owners, right? So rather than simply getting a rent roll from the seller that says, here's the rent that we receive from these tenants every month, thank you, that's helpful. But what you really want in addition to that is something from a certificate from each one of those tenants that says, this is accurate, this is what I'm paying every month, this is what the terms of my lease are as far as when it commenced, when it expires, if I have any renewal rights. And then also very importantly, there are no existing defaults under the lease. So if you get one back and the tenant says, yeah, my roof has been leaking for six months, I'm about to terminate this lease because my landlord won't fix it. Well, you know that. And you can cause the landlord to fix that prior to you buying its interest, or you can use it for leverage for other things that you need to take care of throughout the, um, under while you're still in the contract phase. If a tenant doesn't raise that issue when they have the opportunity, obviously it's gonna be hard for them to make that call after you've already purchased the property. The problem with this, as you can imagine, is tenants who don't, do have a beef with the landlord Maybe it's for cam reconciliations or something else. This is their opportunity to be heard. So it's their leverage. Um, also another time that you get a, an estoppel certificate that's also really important and a lot of investment folks forget about these is um, if you have um, so um, reciprocal rights with another property owner, um, CCNRs, something like that, where there are obligations of both parties. And if one of the parties, and maybe monetary obligations as well. And if one of the parties is in default, the other party can file a lien, or maybe it's to maintain a driveway, maybe it's to maintain a parking lot. Um, but you wanna make sure, maybe it's like an HOA to pay some dues, some assessments. You wanna make sure you get an estoppel from the other party, or maybe it's the prior developer under that document, those CCNRs to make sure again, that it is, fully enforceable, it's still in effect, it hasn't been amended, so you haven't lost rights to say use that driveway. Um, and that it's it's not in default as in maybe the person you're buying from hasn't paid assessments in two years. Well, once you purchase that property, you're gonna be on the hook for those assessments. So you wanna know what assessments are delinquent and have those added to the closing statement on the seller side. So just like if you were in an HOA or a condo association, same kind of thing. 
Awesome. Yeah. So really it comes down to confirming exactly what the owner is providing as far as right. the mm -hmm. terms of the agreement. Uh, and like you said, voicing the concerns for the tenants, because in situ there may be situations where the landlord, like you said, maybe the roof's been leaking for six months and you, they wouldn't know unless you have that certificate. And I guess in the estoppel certificate, I'm assuming there's language in there that if let's say the tenant doesn't voice their concern and they sign this document, let's say a year down the line, they try to sue, sue the, the, the person who bought the property. Is there a, a component in there that says you've waived your right to be able to do certain things or how does that work? Well, not necessarily. What 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 it does say is purchaser is relying on the certifications described in this estoppel certificate. So it's going to be real hard for that tenant to make a case that they had the opportunity and said in writing there are no issues, you know, in order to pursue any kind of damages against the new owner. Now, maybe they can go back against the old owner, they can do whatever they need to there. But against the new owner, they they bought based on this. Now, as a reminder, you know anybody can sue anybody for anything. So that's not to say the tenant can't, you know, file a claim against the new landlord. But it's going to be difficult for them to make a case when they have said in writing, and the and the landlord, the new landlord has relied on that in purchasing the property that there are no claims to be made. Awesome. That's great. Great information, and I'll, I'll definitely echo that as well. So. So in a situation where let's say um, I'm a business owner um, or I'm a brand new business owner, I'm looking to occupy my first space. Uh, I'm looking to lease a commercial property. Uh, we're in talks with a landlord. The landlord provides me with a lease. What are some of the benefits of, of sending that lease over to a lawyer um, to, or like yourself to be able to kind of give you a feel for what, what's in it? Um, so first, you know, leases typically are, Unlike a purchase contract, a purchase contract, you know, is consummated in one day, basically the closing, right? Everybody, there's a big lead up, then you close and everybody goes their separate ways, usually. In a lease, you're living with this document and the terms of this document for a year, five years, 10 years, longer than that. And so it's really important that you understand as a business owner, as a tenant, what your obligations are. So Typically, if somebody hasn't done that before, or if unless they actually sit down and read the lease themselves, then they don't know that it's more than just about, I pay X dollars in rent and I get the right to use this space. There are insurance obligations, there are repair obligations, um, there are lien rights that the landlord has by statute that if you don't pay your rent, they can put a lien on your personal property in the space. So there are a lot of things that you want to know just not so that you um, because there are going to be any surprises there may not be but you definitely need to know what your obligations are um, so that number one you can notify your insurance agent let them know you're leasing this space and that maybe you're the one who's doing the tenant improvements and you're responsible for replacing those and so you want to make sure your insurance agent knows that and can cover the tenant improvement base. I just recently had a client who did not make their insurance agent aware of that. And there was a flood, ruined the flooring and parts of the wall coverings. And they had to come out of pocket to replace that even though they didn't, they didn't pay for those things initially. So it's important to catch all those things and just know initially what your obligations are so that there are no surprises down the road because oftentimes it's a very long road. No, I agree. And, and 
I'll even say this. I had a, I had a client recently that, that we, they released out like a, a grocery, well, they wanted to make a, a international grocery store. And part of the provisions that they had within the H for the HVAC provision is that they would be responsible for any damages above $500, which for a small store like that could be catastrophic if let's say a $10,000 HVAC system goes out. So it's one of those things where if you're not very careful about reading the, the, the language and some of the language is very hard to interpret. Uh, it's very, can, can be vague. Obviously some are definitive, but there's definitely some language in there that can be vague. So uh, it's just definitely one of those things that you just got to look at. And if you right. have and, a lawyer to help, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, and also I think depending on your business or, or, or where you're leasing, you know, if you are a, you know, a pizza restaurant, you might want to make sure that this landlord doesn't lease to any other pizza restaurants in the shopping center. So again, a lawyer might not, they're not just going to catch kind of gotchas or anything like that, or advise you on your responsibilities throughout the life of the lease. They may have some helpful suggestions for helping you protect your business during the life of that lease. So, you know, yeah. lots of reasons. Yeah, I agree. And in an exclusivity clause, like in a multi-tenant center, that would be very beneficial in particular, if you're, like you said, for a liquor store, for example, you probably don't want a liquor store moving in right next door because that's going to hurt your your sales. So, right, that's awesome. All right. So, you did mention earlier today. Uh, I know we were talking briefly before we we went live on about uh, covenants, um, conditions, and restrictions. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what they are and then in what scenarios the, these would become relevant? Sure. So. Covenants, conditions, and restrictions, better known as CCNRs, you know, those are, that is an agreement that um, property is subjected to when it is contemplated that down the road, it will be, it will be owned by multiple property owners. So again, for instance, a subdivision with an HOA, you know, all those homeowners, each lot and house is owned by a different homeowner, but they all have to live under these same rules. Same thing goes with, say, a shopping center without lots or two adjacent properties that may share access off the highway. So at any at any time where there are multiple property owners that want, number one, to have um, the same rules that apply to both properties so that they have some consistency as far as maybe the way it looks, maybe the way they take care of parking and paving, maybe again, access, those kinds of things, or maybe um, for purposes of if something is under development, typically it's the developer who goes ahead and puts this in place before the property is divvied up and sold to lots of different owners. So they can make the rules about exactly how they want this shopping center to be operated with say a strip and then maybe three outlots or something like that. We're all gonna be on the same page about how things are gonna look you know, keeping up your lot, what it's supposed to look like. We're going to pay assessments so that we can get the, the parking lot repaved when it's appropriate. You know, as long as the developer's involved, maybe um, they have the right to put easements in place on everybody's property within five feet of the boundary line or something like that, just to sort of expedite things, make it more efficient for the development, keep it nice, keep everybody on the same page about what expectations are. And because it's recorded, it runs with the land. So when that developer sells an outlot, that outlot remains subject to these rules and has to comply. Maybe those rules contain restrictions about what, um, you know, what use can be made of the property. If there's already, again, a pizza joint, maybe there's a restriction against multiple pizza joints. But these CCNRs 
um, provide for some consistency among the property owners and rules of how they're going to operate, who's going to collect the money for assessments, how it's going to be spent, that kind of thing. So again, a reminder that um, if you are considering purchasing property that's part of, uh, that is subject to CCNRs, considering an estoppel certificate from whoever's controlling the CCNRs at the moment is, is beneficial. Awesome. And then as far as the CCNR goes, um, is, is and, and let's say, let's take the developer example for right now. Is the developer the one who has the right to be able to modify the CCNRs at any given time? Or is it, does since it runs with the land, how does that, how does that? So initially, and, and this should all be written into the CCNR. So initially, if it is, you know, one declarant, one developer who's putting this all together, you know, once in a blue moon, you see them parties coming together that separately own things, putting together some conditions, restrictions, et cetera. But initially, typically, it is the initial property owner, the developer, and it provides that um, until the developer sells a certain number of lots, uh, where they no longer have control, for instance, then um, a um, say much again like the homeowners association, perhaps a council is formed by the owners of the different lots within that are subject to the CCNRs. Then those can become the board, basically, who make all the decisions and all the calls and make you know provide for assessments and arrange to have the parking lot paved and, and things like that. So typically, it's the developer until the developer has sold a certain number of lots and then the owners of the lots, you know, as being part of a council that has a board that acts on its behalf. Um, sometimes you see, or oftentimes actually, you see that at a certain point, even if the developer hasn't sold all the lots or a certain percentage at a certain date, it control transfers to the council and to the board of that council. Okay, awesome. Thanks for the clarification there. It was definitely an interesting, uh, um, thought process on that. So now that we've kind of gotten an idea of some of the things that you're involved in with, with a commercial transaction, can you tell us like some, maybe some of the most common pitfalls you see uh, business owners face when they're looking to purchase their first commercial property? Um, uh, first and foremost, they can get hooked up with a bad broker. So this is where you come in, right? Um, getting a good broker is the first really important thing to do for somebody who, you know, their business is say, you know, uh, I don't know, a, um, a distribution or a manufacturing company. They don't do real estate. That's not what they do. They do something else. They make things, they distribute things. So they need somebody who's in the real estate world to tell them what to look for, where to look for it, what the terms should be, what to expect. And that's the broker. So the broker, number one thing first is get a really good broker who's got experience, knows the lay of the land, knows lots of folks. Um, and then from there, um, making sure that, um, you know, number one is get in touch with their, also bring in their, their CPA. So not just a, a real estate attorney, but also a CPA to look at the tax consequences, any restructuring that needs to be done. A lot of folks will just attempt to go ahead and buy the property in the name of their business, which is probably not best, um, although that needs to be something for their CPA to, to, to think about. But you, know, you don't want somebody suing you because you made a 
product incorrectly, and then they somehow then have access to your asset, which is your building, because it's owned by the same business. So to the extent you can sort of bifurcate that ownership, then you protect one from the liabilities of the other. So that's a big one that a lot of folks don't think about. And then once they do think about that, they realize that then there has to be some connection between that business and that property owner. So then they have a lease. So then there are these multiple layers of ownership, which of course seems like way more than they intended to do from the beginning. Um, but it is important. And I think their CPA can probably tell them the same thing. So once you get there, if, if it's an owner occupied space, um, that's, those are where most of the major pitfalls arise. Obviously during the course of a purchase contract, there's lots of things to work out, but those are the, are the biggies way on the front end of the first things to think about. The broker also is super important for helping quarterback the deal and moving it along. And one of the reasons why it's, it's very important to get a broker that you really trust and that has a great reputation is because you know when if if brokers make their commission by a closing some folks that's the first only thing in their mind is i don't get paid unless this closing occurs and so regardless of whether it's good or bad for their client they just want that closing to take place the 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 good guys like Raphael and the old, other folks at Grisanti um, they're in it for the client and they want to make sure that um, if it's not a good deal, it doesn't happen. If it's not best for their client, they're there to protect their client's interests. So whether or not the deal closes, they'll find, you know, they'll be on the lookout for other opportunities. So. Yeah, it's a fiduciary duty. I mean, you just want to make sure that they have your best interest in mind, similar to what lawyers have, accountants have. Um, if it's not good for you, it's, it's not good for me. So it's like one of those things where you just got to make sure you trust the people that you're dealing with um, in any profession. So that's awesome. Um, so last thing we'd kind of touch on was related. We talked about a little bit on the business owner side, but can you tell us a little bit about some of the pitfalls investors uh, face in particular when they're looking to purchase commercial property and given the environment right now, it's probably ever more uh, precarious depending on what, uh, what asset class you're focusing on. Right. So a lot of folks, again, they, um, like we discussed earlier, they're looking strictly at revenue. So they want to invest there. You know, they've got some extra cash. They want to invest that money in real estate because it, it seems safe. Um, and so they sort of jump into it, even if they get a broker who finds them a good property with, you know, a revenue producing property. Um, if they don't do their due diligence, it may become a worse, you know, worse investment than they had anticipated. And, and again, that's all on the front end. So, you know, most of these investors are gonna do the things that a business owner might not think about, which is they probably do know a good broker to get in touch with. They probably do know that they wanna set up a separate, say limited liability company in order to take title. But then a lot of them um, wanna sort of skip the due diligence process. And that is a big mistake um, because if you're not looking at title, if you're not looking, you know, getting a survey and looking to see what the boundaries are, if the building sits on top of an easement, um, if you're not looking at environmental issues, zoning, all those things can come back to bite you. And once you're the owner of the property, um, you know, that's your problem to solve. While you still have the opportunity to make the seller solve the problem, that's, that's who you need to force to do it. 
part of that process, again, is getting estoppel certificates, running all those reports and investigations, like we said. And, and by and large, with all those things, to the extent you can get them done, get them done before your earnest money goes hard. Um, so, and that really means focusing on it, not just signing your per purchase contract and waiting for closing, but staying involved, making sure that you're on top of what needs to happen when, and making sure that it all happens. And not just that it happens, but you're actually reviewing the results and being very comfortable with what you're getting. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And there's so many moving parts in the transaction. I mean, you, we usually, when we have leases involved, we go through lease abstracts, we go into each and every single lease. We look to see what the provisions are. If it's a gross lease, a triple net lease, a double net lease, like how is this going to affect you from a financial standpoint? Because they could show great income, but if your expenses are through the roof, then at That's the end of the exactly day, right. yep, yep. Your, your, your net right. income is not going to really be maybe what you're looking for as far as your investment criteria is concerned. And I agree on the the zoning is another big thing. I, I do this all the time with but with business owners. It's like, oh, I want to put my car lot here or something. It's like, well, is it zoned for that? If not, then you're you're putting yourself in a bad position. You really have to put a contingency plan in place saying, look, I'm going to try to rezone this. And if it doesn't go, then, you know, buy the property. So it's one of those things where there's just a lot of moving parts you got to consider prior to actually purchasing an investment property or a business or a property to operate your business out of. So. And there's not, um, to your point about say zoning, it's not that any of these problems are problems that can't be resolved, mm -hmm. but why not do that on the seller's dime or at least maybe split the cost instead of waiting until your hands are tied and you have to bear all the costs for that. Definitely, oh, definitely. All right, so that's that's primarily like the set questions that I had for you. Now what we'll go ahead and do is open it up to the discussion here in Zoom and uh, we're also live on Facebook. So I'll be checking the chat box to see if anyone has any questions. So feel free to ask away if you guys have any questions. Okay, let's see. I got one for you, Raphael. Yeah. So, Jane, would you be involved in, in what if it's a purchase of a business and the acquisition of the building combined? Yeah, so we do that, too. So we have corporate folks here who handle, um, you know, sales of businesses and including all of their assets, whatever they may be. So, yeah, definitely. And in fact, if you can, you know, um, find a law firm that's going to do all of that together, um, that's that's exactly what you need. But Certainly, yeah, you can put that in, in one big APA um, asset purchase agreement and take care of all of that at once. Yep. That's awesome. So we have a question from Freddie. So, hey, Freddie, how's it going? Happy birthday, by the way. That was his birthday recently. Um, so I'm having trouble with appraisals on our laundromat uh, we have under contract. Uh, the, one, the ones my bank use are three weeks out unless I want to pay an extra $800 to expedite it. Is that normal for commercial? And what's a normal cost for an appraisal on the commercial side? I don't know if this is something you'd be able to. I, yeah. I can answer that. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. $8 is about right. Uh, appraisals are running slow. And if it's a laundromat, you might as well be prepared. They're probably going to do an environmental. Yeah. And don't go to an environmental stage two or three, because then you're talking not just a few thousand, but thousands of dollars. Yeah, there was a, so there, and interestingly enough, uh, Paul bought this, the building we're in right now, our office uh, used to be a, a laundromat. And so they actually had to remediate the site and that cost a ton of money, but he was able to uh, get the seller uh, to, at the time, split. I think he either split or, or paid a lot of the cost himself, but 
that was tens and thousands of tens of thousands of dollars because they had to dig like holes in the ground and drop this particular chemical to neutralize. Uh, I can't remember exactly what is uh, the different chemicals that are used in a dry cleaning facility, but they're very they're not good for you. And so they dropped the these these lines in the ground and they essentially had to neutralize the, the chemicals in a certain way. So that can be very very dicey. But yeah, that's something to consider for sure. If, there's also uh, um, I'm sorry. Rafael. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. That was it. Um, so there's also um, in Kentucky and I'm sure other states, there's a brownfield program so that you can go through this process with the Kentucky Department of Energy Environmental Cabinet and, and they come out, they determine exactly what the status of the, of the property is. You have to have, you know, sometimes there's monitoring, there's annual kind of reconnaissance and reporting, but they sort of then have you on file as knowing what the status of the property was when you bought it. So you're not then held responsible for any environmental liability prior to your ownership. So you're not gonna get dragged into it. Now, that's just for um, things for um, liability from the government's perspective. You can still get sued by a third party, you know, anytime, but this protects you from um, the government coming after you for historic uh, contamination. Each new owner of the property has to go back through the process, but once it's done the first time, they've got that information, you get their consent to transfer the property, they vet the, the new owner through the same through the same process. And um, it's, it's really becoming um, easy to do and beneficial and more and more people are acquainted with it. And so it's, um, once you find property and the seller says, oh, it's in the Brownfield program, you know, from the get-go, okay, there are some issues, but they've been vetted and I won't have liability for them. So. Yeah, we actually have a, a property under contract right now that's in the Brownfield program. So the, our buyer will have to essentially pay the fee uh, to get mm -hmm. the, uh, get into the program. And like you said, uh, it kind of absolves him of liability for anything prior to his ownership. So um, definitely good information. All right, checking Facebook, sorry. Um, is there anything else that you think that, uh, you wish I would have asked you that would be helpful to, that I know it's, it's kind of a generic question, but I thought I'd ask because sometimes people are like, oh, I really wish I would have addressed this yeah. particular issue. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I wish you had asked it. I probably should have answered it, um, as, as part of my other questions, but, um, something that both investors and business owners should should think about going into the process is, of course, financing. So not just making sure that they have a financing contingency in their um, purchase contract if they need one, if they don't think they can line up um, financing within the regular due diligence period, but also from the very beginning, get your lender involved and see what their requirements are going to be because they may be other than what you know, the due diligence that you have described in your purchase contract. So you may be going down the road and ordering title commitments and environmental phase ones. And um, meanwhile, your lender is out there running a parallel track, doing the same thing, doubling your costs and maybe not, maybe doing it three weeks after you did it. So now there are these delays. So getting in line with your lender and what they're requiring and what you're going to have to pay them to do anyway can really make the whole process more efficient for you and, and and keeping the seller nothing is more aggravating to a seller 
than getting through the due diligence period and thinking that you're done. And then suddenly up pops this lender who hasn't done any due diligence and you're forced to extend out your, your closing date to allow this lender to do all this due diligence. So um, keeping that in mind from the get-go, I think is, is really helpful. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I've definitely faced that on multiple occasions with different people who are buying properties in particular, especially if, if, the, if the property itself has some hair on it, meaning that there's some other things that the bank has to consider through an underwriting, from an underwriting perspective, you need to get them involved like right off the bat because um, they're going to be coming back to you and saying, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And so if you don't start the process early, then you run the risk, like you said, of requiring an extension. I mean, everyone, I know the seller after a while, it's like if you continue to extend the, the process, I mean, it could can, it can definitely um, not be beneficial, but and unfortunately, you know, if, if your lender has gotten far enough down to say there is an environmental issue and you know about it because the seller disclosed it to you and maybe gave you a copy of their phase one, you got to tell your lender about that right away. The last thing you want them to do is order an appraisal that you've got to pay for and hire an attorney who's drafted all the loan documents that you're paying for before they actually realize there's an environmental issue and they don't want to touch it. So you still have to pay for all those things. You just don't get to close the loan. So um, again, keeping them abreast of everything from the beginning, keeping will keep it a streamlined process. Awesome. Okay. So any other questions on Facebook? Do you guys have any questions in the Zoom chat? If not, we'll round out the meeting. Got a message. Oh. Okay. I think I think that's all the questions we had. Uh, Jamie, I really just want to thank you for hopping on the call. Uh, like I said, we usually we record these meetings, so I always post them on Facebook. Uh, I post them on YouTube and Facebook and everything else, and so this will be able to be viewed in perpetuity. And great, thanks again for your right. time. I really do appreciate. It. Hopefully, we can do some business together soon. Sure. Yeah, I hope so. And good luck to everybody out there. Thank you very much. Thanks. That was awesome. Thanks, guys. Bye. See ya.